Hey, I know it's going to be 75 today, but it is Christmas. Uh, If you're like new to Texas, if you just moved here, this is what we love about Texas and also what we kind of hate about Texas. You know what I'm saying? That the weather is uh, always allergies. Anybody else this week? Oh my goodness. Wow, that was probably my biggest amen of the morning was allergies. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Hey, my name is David. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here. I love getting up here and uh, have a chance to, to preach and have a chance to speak out of God's word. Um, we've been uh, in our Christmas series so far. We've talked about how Jesus is a king with four names and how he's a promised child who's coming so far. And, and this week, I want to talk about how Jesus is a king for everyone. Um, and many of us are familiar with the, 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 um, the, the phrase from Luke's gospel account that goes something like this. In the days of Caesar... You guys know it, and your Rolodex is probably flipping back right now to the old little churches you used to go to. You'd hold the candles, and you'd sing, Silent Night. You know what I'm talking about? You're smelling Christmas cookies. You're hearing little unwrapped presents. Whenever I hear, whenever I hear in the days of Caesar Augustus, my mental Rolodex, okay, uh, children, Rolodexes are the old things. Man, we don't have that anymore, do we? The older people in the, in, the, in the crowd know what I'm talking about. A Rolodex used to hold all your contacts because you, you had a lot of phone numbers or a lot of addresses that you had to know, and that was the spot to, to write them all down, and you have to roll through that thing to figure out which name you needed to, to gather. And so when I hear in the days of Caesar Augustus, my mental Rolodex begins to flip back to all of the times I was with Mama up in Pennsylvania in her little Lutheran church holding my candle uh, letting the wax drip onto the, you know, the pew because I was a bad kid. You know, like that. I remember all of those things, and I remember snow, and I remember Christmas, and, and I remember uh, uh, just the Christmas spirit. All that nostalgia begins to hit me. Now, let, let, me, let me ask you about this line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you just feel the Christmas spirit on that one? You're about to read a genealogy. Do you just feel like, oh, man. I'm so excited to read this genealogy right now. I feel like I'm just, Christmas is happening all around me right now. Frosty the snowman's magic is going to whip me into the air. Okay, well, let's keep reading. What about this? Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father... And most of us at this moment begin to glaze over because we've exited the Christmas spirit and now we're reading a list of names. This is the beginning of the gospel account that Matthew gives us. It starts off with a genealogy, and I know that the genealogies and Leviticus and some other books like that are the, are the places in Scripture where we, our eyes begin to glaze over and we'll just as quickly as we can pass over those names or just skip them all together. You guys know what I'm talking about? the most snore-inducing parts of Scripture. Can we say that out loud? I am, for sure. I know that when I do my yearly, like, Bible plan, I get stumped in Leviticus. I get stumped in, like, Numbers, where they just keep talking about all these names over and over again. I get stumped again in Chronicles, because it's just, it's boring. It's a little boring, right? Okay, y'all are with me today. And so, and so I, I, when I read the beginning of Matthew's Gospel account, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's nothing particularly impressive to me in those moments. In the days of Caesar Augustus, now that story really whips me up, but the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that begins to make my eyes flutter towards sleep. 
And I know that all of us kind of view the genealogies that way, but it should make us pause and ask a question. Why is it there? What is it accomplishing? Why is there a genealogy at all? Well, I want you to remember back to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, uh, we don't have time to read the whole story, but essentially uh, this is where the fall of man occurs. Um, we, we have Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, who uh, are, are told by God, don't eat of a certain fruit in the garden. Because I, I just want you to learn obedience to me. I want you to know that, that joy comes through obedience to me. And so they're, they're living their lives well. They're, they're naming the animals. They're tending the garden. And then a serpent comes by and tempts them and says, did God really say, no, no, you won't die. You won't die for sure. Take that fruit. Define good and evil for yourself. Create your own power and your own destiny. You'll be like God if you eat this fruit. Man and woman both, Adam and Eve, believe the serpent. They take the fruit and they eat, and they bring sin into the world. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have God describing the curse of sin. He's describing what will now happen because sin has entered the world. Sin is disobedience to God's commands. And every relationship will now have havoc wreaked upon it. Not just our relationship to one another, not just our relationship to God, but our relationship to the animals, our relationship to the earth, and the earth's relationship to us as well. All relationships are now broken and fractured because of what sin has done. And you and I also join in by choosing things that we believe will be best for us rather than what God says to us. Don't just think that you inherited a curse from Adam and Eve. No, you willfully and sometimes joyfully join in their rebellion as well. But this is what God says to the snake, to the serpent, the antagonist of the story that we see. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, remember, God is talking to the serpent. He's talking to the snake. We don't necessarily know who this figure is at the moment in the story in Genesis chapter 3. You're on this side of the New Testament, so you understand who the character is actually is, but if you just started the Bible and never heard about Christianity or never heard any of the story, you'd just be like weirded out by this interesting character that shows up, this kind of sneaky, well, literally a snake person uh, who shows up and tempts them. We don't know what he's about. We just know that he's on the opposite side of what God wants. And what God tells him is, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he transitions from kind of plural phrases into a very specific idea. God then says, he shall bruise your head, which the words in Hebrew are really like stomp on your head, smush your head, okay? That's really, it's not just like he he just barely gave him a little love tap. It was like a, a, a stomp, a smush. And as he smushes your head, you will bruise his heel. This is the first moment that we see a promise that there will be a child, a person born of women, a woman who would come and defeat the antagonist in the story. Does this make sense so far? So astute readers and anyone who loves good stories, if you're like me, you love Lord of the Rings, you love, um, you know, grand stories like Star Wars or, or, you, or you really like Tom Clancy novels. Maybe you're not into like superheroes and stuff like that, but maybe you like really good like spy thrillers or whatever. If you're into really good stories, you from the moment that you begin opening and reading your Bible, you're looking for the good guy and you're looking for the bad guy. The bad guy shows up 
and now we've been promised that there will be a good guy who's going to come and bring about uh, destruction of the antagonist. Now, we keep reading the Bible, we keep reading the Old Testament, more and more of the story gets revealed, and, and, and finally we understand who the serpent is. We learn from a later prophet, Isaiah, that the serpent was, was actually an, an angel who rebelled against God, and his name was Lucifer, and he fell out of heaven, and then he comes to tempt um, Adam and Eve to, to, to join his rebellion as well. We learn from these prophets and from the promises that God gives to the specific Israelite Jewish people, that there will be a Messiah who will come through David's line. King David is another character in the Old Testament, a prominent character. He was so in line with God's heart that God decided to send the Messiah through his biological line. And so we're looking for a child who will come through David's line. We're looking for a specific place. We know that that Bethlehem will be the place that a child will be born, and we're looking for a certain person who will embody the characteristics that the prophets tell us he'll be like. So the genealogies are important. I know that we glaze over, I know that we start to yawn when we think about them, but the genealogies are important because who are we looking for? looking for Jesus. We're looking for a child who would be born of woman. We're not looking for a God who will, who will come out of heaven in all of his splendor and destroy everything and make it all new again. We're looking for a little baby to be born who will defeat sin and who will defeat the antagonist of the story, which we later on know to be Satan or the devil. We're looking for this promised offspring, and the genealogies help us to be specific about who this person will be, what line they come through. In fact, if you were to um, buy a, uh, a chronological Bible, does anybody own a chronological Bible? I'm just curious. A couple of us in the room. They're really interesting. The, the format of your Bible right now as it is, is not in chronological order. So maybe the first five books of the Bible are, maybe the first six or seven books of the Bible are, but then after that, they just kind of get arranged in different places. So all the prophets get put together, um, uh, kind of all the history stories get put together, um, and then all the poetry and wisdom literature gets put together in the middle. But what's really happening is that in First Kings, we're telling a story about David, and there's a psalm that he's writing at that same moment, and then there's also a prophet that's talking about what's happening at that same moment. And so it's really hard to understand unless you have a chronological Bible to, to know that First Kings, uh, Amos, and a psalm are all at the same moment happening. Does this make sense so far? So your Bible's not written in chronological order, which makes it a little confusing to read. Maybe you should think about getting a chronological Bible if you're interested in how the actual story lays out and is played out. But at the end of the actual Old Testament, so your Bible has Malachi at the end of your Old Testament, but the actual end of the Old Testament is not Malachi, it's Chronicles. You guys are like, what is Chronicles? <laughs> Again, it's one of those boring books where there's a list of names and you just read a list of names over and over and over and over and over again. And so I was looking at my chronological Bible this week, and I thought to myself, isn't it so interesting that the Old Testament ends with a, with a uh, genealogy, and the New Testament begins with one? I think there's a purpose and a reason behind that, because what the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the Old Testament are trying to call our attention back towards is Genesis chapter 3. There's an offspring who's coming who will defeat the antagonist of the story who will defeat sin and death. You need to be paying attention. You need to be looking for a child. And what the genealogies do for us is they prove that Jesus, who comes, is a part of David's biological line. 
a part of what the genealogies do for us is they legitimize Jesus' standing as the gap between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the future. The genealogies prove to us who he is and what he will do. The genealogies are incredibly important. What they do is they show us that Jesus is a king for everyone. They show us that Jesus is a king for everyone. Let me explain why I mean that. Because Jesus is not just a a king for the people that you'd expect. The genealogy in Matthew um, is not a complete genealogy. There's only 14 generations, I think, that are listed, which there's far more that that are actually between uh, Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus. There's far more, but... The, the writers of the Old Testament weren't concerned about necessarily that perfect accuracy. They were concerned with accuracy, but they were concerned more with the major players of the story to get you to Jesus. Does that make sense? We're, we're not trying to give you every single name ever. We're trying to give you the major players of those names. And what's interesting about Jesus' genealogy is that there's wicked kings like Jehoiakim mentioned. We, uh, the worst one, actually. Maybe the worst king in all of uh, uh, Israel's ancient kingdom. There are... Um, There are abusers and those who are abused within the genealogy. There are five women listed within the genealogy. One of the famous Talmudic prayers that you've probably heard of, the Talmud was like an additional prayer volume that the Jewish um, rabbis wrote, and they said, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, that I'm not a woman, but that I'm a man and that you've made me to do so and so and so forth. Maybe you've heard that line before. The Jews didn't hold a high um, view of women. And so to have five women listed in a genealogy is pretty important. There's an intention behind it, especially because we're leaving out specific names on purpose to put in different names on purpose. We have a woman named Tamar who's in there. She has a, 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 an illicit sexual scandal that occurs in her, in her story in the Old Testament. We have Rahab, a Gentile prostitute. We have, uh, we have Ruth, who's actually a pretty great person. We like Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are pretty great. We enjoy them. We have the wife of Uriah. They don't even name her, I think, on purpose to draw our attention back to the fact that King David, who is in the genealogy, killed Uriah and abused his wife. Bathsheba is her name. And then we have finally Mary. There are five women that are listed in this genealogy and there are terrible people listed in the genealogy. There's also good people that are listed in the genealogy. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, but what's interesting are the specific people that are pointed out. There's an intentionality behind it and I think it's clear that Jesus isn't bothered with having an earthly family that's filled with some dysfunction. Jesus isn't bothered with having an earthly family um, that, that has some difficult circumstances and some problematic people, and he's not, he's not worried about whether there's men and women in his genealogy. We have a hard time kind of understanding that because your genealogy, if you were to look at your family tree, you write grandma and grandpa's name on there, right? I mean, it's, that's not a- abnormal for you, but for an ancient Jew, this is highly unusual, um, uh, scandalous even to put a woman in your genealogy. And so what Jesus, or sorry, what God is trying to do here, and I think what Matthew's trying to show us here, is that Jesus is a king for everyone, both men and women. He doesn't, he doesn't worry about the details of those people's lives specifically because he's a king over all of them, period. Now that's just the genealogy. And I could spend probably another three sermons doing this, but we, we don't have time for it. So I want to sh- shift over to the, the actual story that we read in Luke's gospel account, 
chapters like one through two or three. And we don't have time to read it, but I want to highlight the, the characters because they're also just so interesting to me. Um, when the recent princes were born um, in, in England, I don't know their name, um, their names, but I know Prince, I think it's Prince William and Prince, Princess Catherine, is that? Or are they like the Duke and Duchess? It doesn't matter. You guys know who I'm talking about, okay? Prince William and Catherine, they, have, they had their, their children, so their wedding was a giant spectacle, wasn't it? And probably many of you watched it. And it was on the 24-hour news cycle, probably for a full 24 hours, which is impressive. Um, and, then, and then you heard the news, I'm sure, or saw it on E! Online or you know, TMZ or whatever, I don't know what outlet you follow, or what, Fox News or whatever it is you follow. You saw that the children were born because the royal announcement went out through all the world. Jesus had no such announcement. There were no palaces, there were no kingly introductions. Really, the story's pretty tame. The characters in the story are two pregnant women, Mary and Elizabeth, some old folks, Simeon and Anna, some blue-collar workers like Joseph. Um, there's some granola. Uh, uh, you don't know granola phrase. Um, you, you, not, not many of your millennials in here. Um, Alaskan bush people. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? There's some Alaskan bush people, the shepherds, um, just outcasts of society, want to go out and live their lives out in the fields, want to hang out with the animals as opposed to being a part of or integrated into society. Um, there's a reason for that. We'll explain it in a minute. And there's some Gentiles, some magi that come from the east. These are the major players in Jesus' story, and probably the two most prominent are two pregnant women. This is just a really interesting way to usher in a king. No great announcements, no palatial uh, settings. Instead, very normal, average people, nothing impressive from an outsider's viewpoint. It doesn't point to stateliness or power, and I think that's exactly the point. Because Jesus isn't the normal type of king. He isn't a king who associates with the muckety-mucks and the rich and the powerful or the religiously important. Instead, he's a king who associates with every person and with every type of person. He isn't unfamiliar with difficult family histories or less than perfect friends. That's exactly what makes him a king for everyone. He's also a king for every man and every woman, both young and old. Mary is a teenager. She receives shocking news that she'll give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. We've been waiting since Genesis chapter 3 to have this person who will defeat the antagonist of the story. We've been looking for this person. And every time an important character props up and pops up in the story, we see Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah and all these impactful characters. And we keep thinking, is this going to be the one that will finally defeat sin? will finally defeat the antagonist of the story, and none of them are. And so we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally Mary receives a message out of the blue that she will be the one who gives birth to the Messiah. I've always wondered why she was chosen. Have you ever wondered that? I've always wondered why she... And maybe a pastor told me, and I just didn't catch it, but, but Elizabeth, the other pregnant woman of the story who's giving birth to John the Baptist... He's the one that, that comes before Jesus. He's actually Jesus' cousin, and he's going to come before Jesus, and he's going to tell Israel about the coming Messiah, and he's going to prepare a way for the Lord that Israel's hearts would be ready, the people of Israel would be ready to receive the Messiah. He's an important 
character in the story, and Elizabeth is an important character in the story. She says this about Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Why was Mary chosen? Because she believed. Because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken. She listened to God's word. She trusted it. And then she obeyed. Not because she's outwardly impressive or because she held status that marked her apart from anybody else. She's a teenager from Nowheresville. I mean, as insignificant, especially, especially a girl in that, in that ancient time. She's as insignificant as you can get, and yet God decides to partner with Mary to bring Jesus into the world. He chooses her to be the one that protects, guides, and nurtures King Jesus in his young life. Then there's Simeon and the prophetess Anna. Old people. We got any old people in the room? Don't raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. None of y'all are old. You're just seasoned. Okay? You're just wise. Old people... Simeon and Anna, they get the blessing of meeting the long-awaited offspring who would finally defeat evil and sin. Simeon had apparently been praying for a long time, asking God if he could meet the Messiah. You guys know the song, uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Simeon actually got to meet the one in whom our hopes and dreams should be placed. Simeon was waiting. And in fact, Scripture uh, says that, that God kept him alive until he could meet the Messiah. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. God allows him to live until he meets the Messiah. Uh, Mary and Joseph, they come to the temple and they present Jesus. Um, uh, we, we have a new son. Here he is. He's our firstborn. There's some specific um, ritual laws that had to occur when you had a firstborn. So they bring him to the temple. And Simeon, moved by the Spirit, gets to go meet just this little baby. But he recognizes because he's listening, trusting, and obeying God's word, he recognizes that this baby is truly the king who was to come. He's been paying attention to his genealogies. He's been paying attention to the promises that scripture has been giving. And finally, he gets to meet this promised child, and he breaks out into praise. It's a really cool moment in Luke chapter 2. Then the prophetess Anna, right after they get done with Simeon's praise moment, I just wonder what Mary and Joseph are thinking. Um, they're just trying to get, have you ever been like walking in a supermarket and you got a baby, and like every old person's like, oh, they're so cute. Like that's, that's what I imagine Mary and Joseph. They're just like, I'm trying to go get the carrots. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just let me go do the thing I'm trying to do, please. And they, and they carry Jesus off to the next moment, and then the prophetess Anna, who's also very old, shows up. The Spirit moves her as well to go meet the promised child who was to come. And after realizing who Jesus is, she begins to prophesy and tell all the people that the Messiah has now come. Jesus is a king for every man and every woman, both young and old. So teenagers, would you let God partner with you to change your schools? Because he's your king. And he has directives for you. And he wants to change your life so that you can change the lives of of others, what might he be asking you to do today? Seasoned, wise veterans in the room, what what might be what might God be asking you to do? Are you partnered with Him to see evil defeated in your families and in your circles of influences? Simeon and Anna were. 
They stand as an example for us and how we should be seeking to partner with God to find the things that he's promised for us and for our families. Listen, don't just talk about my generation. I know I'm a millennial and I know I'm wrecking all the businesses in the whole world and I I get all that. I get all that, but don't just talk about me, talk to me. Get to know me, get to know my my people. We want to know you. And listen, the church has something that nobody else does, genuine friendship and relationship. Nowhere else in the world. In fact, I was just listening to a sermon last night. This is not my notes. This is for free. Um, I was listening to a sermon last night. Um, In South Korea and in Japan, they're starting to make furniture for one. The only time that ever happened was when great wars occurred, like the world wars, and when the bubonic plague happened in the 1500s. The last time that furniture was made for one was when great calamities occurred and no one had relationships because no one was alive to have relationships. Now, as a product of digital Babylon where we live, that's a phrase we'll, we'll fill out for you, don't worry. As a, as a result of where we live and as a result of our lives, our insulary, um, uh, hyper-individualistic lives that are all lived on a digital platform, furniture for one must now be built. Isn't that wild? The church must not be so. Old people, young people, we need to work together to be the church that Jesus came to be king of. We need your relationships, wise people. We need you, and we love you. Teenagers, go meet the wonderful people in this room. They need you, and they love you as well. Jesus is not just a king for every man and every woman. He's a king for every demographic. I told you about the blue-collar worker that we see in Joseph. He's just a carpenter. There's poor people in the story. There are rich Gentiles that come from the east, which they're bizarre. Uh, we, we learned their story last week that Daniel, um, one of the scripture writers, one of the important figures in the Old Testament, actually uh, gave them the legacy of looking for a child that would come. Isn't it interesting that some of the very few people that actually knew what was going on were Gentiles from far away? It's really interesting that the people in Israel had no clue what was happening. Angels had to tell them. But the Gentiles from the east were watching for his star. They were paying attention to the genealogies. They were paying attention to the prophet's writings. They were looking for the one earnestly who would be the king for every person. And they show up. They're very interesting. The shepherds. The prophetesses, the devout men, the angelic messengers that are involved in Jesus' birth story. Jesus is a king for all of them, for every demographic. Whether the person was Jewish or not, rich or not, important or not, forgotten or remembered, God partnered with each one to accomplish his purposes. Jesus is unlike the kings that we know. Not an unjust king who tailors just to the rich and powerful, but a just king who forgives the sins of every person. Not a capricious king who must maintain power through fear and violence like King Herod, but a faithful king who saves his people through love and sacrifice and service. Not a king just for the Jews, but a king for all ethnicities. If I have time, we could just look at the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about how Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, one of the very first promises that we receive in the Old Testament about um, Abraham and the promise of, of his family being the one that would bless all the world, that's the very, one of the very first things that links Abraham to God is that, is that uh, God tells Abraham, your family will, bless, will be blessed 
but not only will they be blessed, they will be a blessing to all peoples. We have from the very beginning the heart of God showing us that God is not just for a certain type of people. He is for all people. I love it. In the birth story, we see all these different types of people. God chooses to partner with people not unlike you and I. People from every walk of life, people of all ages. What distinguishes them is not their labels, though. That's not what distinguished them. Yeah, you see different people and, you know, different hair colors and different skin colors and whatever. But that's not what distinguished them, not their labels. What distinguished them from the rest of the world was their willingness to listen, trust, and obey God's directions. In each character of the story, we see a person ready and willing to be used by God to accomplish his purposes in the world. I mean, we even see that God is going to accomplish his purpose despite what humans do. There's no greater example than King Herod, who's in this story. King Herod um, gets a, a visit from the Magi, from the kingmakers we learned last week, from the people who are coming to worship and bring gifts to Jesus. They come and they recognize what's happening, and they say to King Herod, hey, where's, where's the, the king that was born? Where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, ooh, I don't like that. King Herod was a, a, kind of a wicked dude. Um, he, he, not kind of, he just was. He like, killed off his whole family so he could maintain his own power. He's not a good guy. And so he's scheming in his own mind, and he says to the Magi, you go find that baby and tell me where it's at. I'd love to go worship him myself. And by worship, he means I'd love to go kill that thing. And that's what he does. He actually sends out an edict and a directive to have all the babies, male, two years and younger in Bethlehem be killed because he's trying to thwart the plans of God, but God will not be stopped. He won't be stopped because he is a king who truly reigns. Despite what humans do or don't do, despite what they're, whether or not they're willing participants or not, King Jesus is working. What I find interesting is that even King Herod believed that Jesus was real. Did you ever catch that? Why would you get, try to kill him if he wasn't really the king? Even King Herod's like, okay, this might be legit. Because he had the people like go and, and check out the scriptures and see if this was all real. And the Magi are really interesting. And they go and check it out to make sure it's all real or not. And they know it's real. And they come and they inform King Herod about the whole deal. This is wild that even King Herod knew that this was the real deal, that Jesus was the real deal. But instead of trying to worship him like the Magi, instead of trying to bring gifts and adore him, he tries to usurp the authority of Jesus through violence. Joseph stands in direct contrast to him as one who's participating in God's plans by listening to Jesus, obeying his directions, and trusting in his words. In Matthew 124, we find a scene where, where Joseph uh, is living with his family, with Mary and with baby Jesus, and a, an angel comes and warns him of the impending plot that Herod has to kill the children in Bethlehem. The angel comes and tells him, uh, you need to flee, you need to go to Egypt, you need to get out of here, because Herod is going to harm Jesus. And this is what it says, when, Jesus, uh, sorry, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, and they flee to Egypt. I think it's really interesting that in Herod's um, uh, uh, great insecurity and that in Herod's great attempt to try and stop the plans of God, he inadvertently um, makes a prophecy of Jesus happen. See, God, will, God won't be mocked. He won't be stopped. 
and he will work despite what we do. And this is good news for you and I because he doesn't need us to be perfect. He just needs us to be aligned. He just wants us to be a part of his plan and lined up with his heart. He wants us to listen, to trust, and obey his commands like Joseph and like Mary. He's a king for every situation. Jesus is a king for every situation. No matter what Herod's doing, no matter what people are or aren't doing, Jesus is a king of every situation, and he's a king in your situation right now where you are. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows the intimate details in and out, and he loves you all the same. I thought this was interesting. I never thought about this. Why do you think Jesus atta- or sorry, why do you think God attaches Jesus to a family wrought with scandal? Okay, you, you tell me this. Would you believe me if I came to you and said, uh, Rachel is pregnant? Um, not the old-fashioned way. Um, the Holy Spirit gave her a baby. You'd be like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Bless your heart. How, how would you even respond? What would you even do? Yeah, you'd probably call somebody on our behalf because you'd think we are crazy. Mary and Joseph have this unique situation. Listen, God knew what he was doing. It's not like God was surprised that there would be a scandalous um, kind of small town gossip surrounding Mary and Joseph. He knew that, that Jesus' uh, family would be called into question. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons that when Jesus starts his earthly ministry and he goes to his hometown, they reject him. They're like, you, what? You're going to tell us about God? Mary is not a good person. I think, it's, I think there's specific reasons why Jesus is kind of rejected in his hometown. It's because they, they, think, they think that Mary's a liar. They think that Joseph is a fool for staying with her. And despite all that, Jesus is the king of their situation as well. He's the king of your situation, no matter who's talking about you. Don't worry about who's judging you. Don't worry about who's uh, 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 idle gossiping around you. Don't worry about any of that because Jesus has you. He's a king in your situation and he knows what you're going through. Whether it's simple in your mind or very difficult in your mind, Jesus is there and he is working through you and he wants to be partnered with you because Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is still true for us today. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're aligned with him, if you're a part of what he is after, if you're in pursuit of his heart, if you are listening, trusting, and obeying him, then things will work together for good. Maybe not perfectly in this situation the way you want it to, but ultimately in the end. I wonder what type of plans he has for you. I wonder what stories will be told about your life. We know about Simeon and Anna. We know about Elizabeth. We know about Mary. We know about the shepherds, the people who were continually um, unclean and weren't allowed to go into the temple. And because they were continually not allowed into the temple and they had to go through this crazy, rigorous plan um, uh, and, and rituals and rites to get back into the temple, they just avoided it altogether and they lived out uh, with their sheep. Uh, they, they are very much like, um, keep, you know, keep Bethlehem weird. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the t-shirts they're wearing. You know what I'm talking about? They don't wear deodorant. You know what I mean? That's, that's the shepherds. Um, okay, I'm, I'm resonating with some of y'all. That's, that's the shepherds. 
they're, they're not about normal life, and yet they were the first people who get to hear the message of Jesus, that he's arrived. And they get to go tell the town about it. Can you imagine what, how weird that would be? Hey, man, I just saw some angels in the field, man. Jesus is here, the Messiah is here. I imagine that that's what most people heard. Alaskan bush people, they're just wild. And yet the shepherds get to be a part of God's story because they listened, trusted, and obeyed. And we get to know their story. I wonder, will we get to know your story? What will your story look like? The story that God's writing, will it be of great faithfulness? Will it be a story that is a little bit difficult but beautiful because the way that you listen to God? Listen, his birth story shows us this beautiful connectedness of people willing to partner with him as they listen, trust, and obey. Will your story be interconnected with people of faith who desire to see God's kingdom be more realized on earth? Are you going to be one of the ones who fought back against the darkness? Are you going to be one of the prayer warriors that goes to bat for your family? Are you going to be one of the people who sets up ministries, who does their best to make disciples, Are those the type of stories that we're going to hear about you in heaven? I sure hope so. I sure hope that you're on mission with God. But listen, it's going to require us to be submitted to the king that is king for everyone. The beauty of that truth is that Jesus wants to work with men and women and poor and rich and powerful and old and young and every ethnicity and every demographic in between because his plans will not be stopped. He is the king. And regardless of your situation or your circumstances, God wants to partner with you. Your decision is, will I listen, trust, and obey him first? It might require that you need to reckon with your own genealogy. You might need to stop living out of what happened to you and your family years ago. It didn't stunt Jesus. And it shouldn't stunt us. Instead of worrying about what our family looked like or the types of things that they have done, let's live forward into what King Jesus has for us now. It might require a little bit of refining in your marriage. I think that's one of the reasons that Joseph and Mary had to go through what they went through. They needed their marriage refined to be the type of parents Jesus needed. They needed to travel together to a faraway land. They needed to to insulate one another from the idle gossip of small towns. They needed to be the champion for one another because they needed to be the champion for Jesus. Some of your relationships and your marriages will need to be refined. Some of you will need to pray for your spouses differently. It might require that your social standing will change, that people will think you're crazy and weird It might require you to travel long distances and navigate tricky situations just like the Magi. It might require you to go and tell the story like the shepherds and like Anna and like Simeon. It might require you to humble yourself and believe that God wants to fulfill his purposes in you and through you. It might require that God is going to show you the fruits of your labor when you're much older and not right now. It might require, uh, I was thinking about this, my, my dad um, started a, well, he wanted to go, he went to seminary um, here in, uh, in Fort Worth at Southwestern. He graduated in 95, he wanted to go and be a missionary to the Middle East. 
He's got a big, long book uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the library there that I can't even repeat the name of because it's so smart. Um, and uh, he wanted to go be a missionary. He wanted to go uh, to the Muslim world and be a missionary. Uh, he's kind of hardcore, honestly, even though he's real soft-spoken. If you know my dad, you'd be like, hardcore? That's not the right word. Um, but, but he kind of is. Um, and he, he uh, through some circumstances, was not able to go. So he started an ESL ministry here in North Texas. And for 35 years, he was just a humble house painter. He has his doctorate from Southwestern. He's equipped to go plant churches. He's equipped to go do things that don't require a paintbrush. And yet for 35 years, I watched my dad be a picture of faithfulness. And finally now he gets to, sorry, finally now he gets to lead this ministry that he set up 20 years ago. His board of directors finally pays for his salary, and now at the age of 55, he gets to, to lead the ministry that he's always wanted to lead. 30 years after he got his degree, 25 years after he set up his ministry, he finally gets to do what he's always wanted to do. Some of us are going to have to wait 30 to 35 years to see what God's doing. Some of us are going to have to be like Simeon and Anna, and we're going to have to wait for the promise that God has for our lives. It might require that of you. Listen, it might not require any of this of you, but it might require some. But whatever it requires, the question is, are you ready to let Jesus be king for you? He's a king for everyone. That includes you. You are a part of the everyone that Jesus came for. The beauty of the incarnation is that, uh, the incarnation is, sorry, that's that's a really spiritual word, oh my goodness. The beauty of Jesus coming down to earth and being born of a man and being born of a man and a woman and being a man is that he knows your struggles intimately and he loves you personally. He's not one who doesn't understand what it looks like to be you. He understands how hard it is to be you and he wants you to be a part of his plans. He wants you who you are and how you are right now, no better and no worse. He just wants you to listen, to trust and obey his directives. I hope you're starting to smell Christmas cookies again. I know we started with the genealogy, but I hope you're starting to think back through the beauty of of the fact that Christmas is here. Jesus has come, and he's a king for everyone. His genealogy and his birth story prove to us that he is the king. They prove to us that the people who are most alive are those who are most fully in his kingdom, the, most, the ones who are most fully listening, obeying, and trusting his words. Now you have a decision to make. Will you fit into the story that God's writing? Will you fit into the purposes that he's trying to accomplish like Mary and Joseph, like Simeon, Anna, Elizabeth, like the shepherds? Will you be a willing participant guided by your king? I want to take some moments to pray and to reflect. Christmas is here. That's not a passive story we hear. It's an active reality that we should live out of. Let's spend some moments in prayer thanking God for his coming, for his forgiveness, for his love and his partnership with you and I. Father, the birth story and the genealogy while we might glaze over in some of the moments of the story because we've heard it a thousand times, the truth is that you are a king for everyone. You're my king, and you're the king of everyone in this room. But we have a choice. 
Help us this morning to choose to listen, to trust, and obey you, and to get on board with the story that you're writing for our lives. Help us this morning to look at the example of Mary and Joseph, those who faithfully believe what you say and live out of that reality. Help us to be like Simeon and Anna who faithfully walked with you for years and years and years and finally got to see the promise and the purpose that you were working on through the world through Jesus. Thank you for the example of the shepherds who despite their social standing show us that no matter whether you're poor or rich, the story can still be told and should be told joyfully by us. Thank you for the example of the magi that come from the east. God has no bars to the kingdom and you don't bar us out of being able to worship and to praise you. Help us this morning to decide to make you king of our hearts, to make you king of our lives. You truly are a king for everyone and you're a king for us in this room this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need to make some decisions this morning, there'll be some wonderful people in the back who'd love to pray with you. If you need to make Jesus the king of your heart now, the king of your life today, don't wait. They would love to pray with you and walk you through what that looks like. If you need to join our church, if you need to be a part of a church that, that, that loves the Lord and wants to be on mission to accomplish his purposes, come to the front and let us know. We'd love to, uh, to partner alongside of you as you partner with, with the Lord. Whatever decision you need to make, let us know, please. We'd love to know how we can be praying for you and how we can be assisting you and partnering with you. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing a song of response and then we'll be dismissed for today.